This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Brian. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on the podcast, we have screenwriter, director, producer, and lifelong competitive martial artist with the emphasis on competitive, Brian Herskowitz. Hi, Brian. Hey, how are you, Sam? So before we get into all the martial arts stuff, let's start with Hollywood for a bit. How did a martial artist break into the the behind-the-scenes side of Hollywood? Because usually our assumption, right, which may not be correct, is that usually we think of martial artists as breaking into Hollywood through being a stuntman or wanting to be some Bruce Lee action star? Or was it the other way around where your dream first was to be a writer or an actor and then uh, martial arts was your second love? Well, actually, I started martial arts first, but I became an actor as a kid. Um, I actually started uh, training in judo at the age of six. So I was a, a real small child when I started. Um, and I started acting when I was about nine. So it was a, just a few years separated the two. Um, I came out to Hollywood really to break into the industry, not really focused on uh, the marriage between martial arts and uh, Hollywood. I, I came out uh, initially, uh, I was still training at that time, looking to compete in the Olympics in 1980. And I had spent some time in Japan training, came out to, to Los Angeles. But I came out to Los Angeles, one, because they had excellent judo, but my focus was to break into the industry as a profession. Uh, I continued to train in judo and martial arts at that time, but I really came out because I wanted to start working as an actor first and then eventually got into writing and producing. Is the reason why you didn't want to be a hybrid because you just wanted to be good at these things separately instead of like being mediocre at both and then just be like, I'm going to combine it? No, actually, the the biggest reason was at the time, um, when you looked at the movies that had martial artists in the films, you didn't see judo or jujitsu, you saw karate, uh, you saw kung fu, you saw you know Bruce Lee, you saw Chuck Norris. And it, I, it just never really dawned on me that I was going to have a career on camera as a, as a judo star. Um, judo was kind of a... a I don't want to say the unwanted stepchild of, of the movies and martial arts, because certainly the techniques were were used in stunts, but it wasn't the focus of it. It wasn't as fancy. You didn't do high kicks. There were the you know the kind of you know spinning back kicks, that kind of thing. So, um, and I just wasn't something that I had ever thought would really pair very well. Although uh, as a writer, the first screenplay I ever wrote was based on uh, a judoka going to Japan, training there, and getting involved with the mafia loosely based on some of my own experiences. Do you think martial arts also informed you as a writer or was it separate? No, it, it hugely influential and, and for several different reasons. Um, uh, I, years ago, now going on 30 years ago, I became a, a teacher, uh, started teaching screenwriting and started off working with uh, UCLA Extensions. And the last 12 years, I've been teaching at Boston University here in Los Angeles and wrote a, a screen 
book, uh, a, a textbook on screenwriting. And one of the things that the reason that I came up with that, and one of the things and the concepts came from actually from martial arts for me. And that was, I had been really studying and finding that when I was in competition, if I was focused on winning or losing, I would, I would choke. So if I went on the mat and all I was thinking about is, you know, this is for the national championships, or this is, you know, going to the world championships, ultimately I would end up being tight and losing. And then I found myself going, okay, so what, what's that about? And I started reading up on sports psychology and I read a book on sports psychology and they started talking about how the, the competitors who made the Olympic teams, who won gold medals, that they would focus on the moment. They focused on the process. Okay, I'm going to do a high jump. I'm going to start on my right foot. I'm going to push off with my left leg. I'm going to have this much force. I want to have this much arc. And I started kind of taking that idea and that concept and applying it to acting, to writing, to producing. And the idea that it's more important that you're in the moment of the process and how do you push through the process technically. And that became the, the basis of my, my, my textbook. And that came directly from my, my learning as a competitor that when I went on the mat and I was thinking more about how am I going to, to grab my opponent, what techniques am I looking to use, what happens if they move a certain direction, rather than, oh my gosh, I really want to win, I had great success. So something that competitors hear a lot, not just in martial arts, but in any sport is this idea of being process oriented. I remember hearing that even when I was on the wrestling team being process oriented, right? And that sounds like something that you're applying to the craft of screenwriting. So what's your book called? It's called Process to Product. Okay. Practical Guide for the Screenwriter. Previous to this, were a lot of screenwriting books or the way that screenwriting was taught was uh, not so much process oriented? Was it more like just technical? It, it really went into two different camps. And this is one of the other reasons that I came up with the book. And they were either extremely step-by-step uh, -step and, and I found somewhat restrictive, or they were kind of esoteric. So you would have something like uh, uh, Campbell's books on the hero's journey. And that would be a, a story about, you know, uh, a monomyth, a character that goes out and has to bring a boon back to society. And that's great, but it, it didn't really give you, how do I get there? And then there was the other side, which were people like... Uh, Sid Field or, or um, um, uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, but he did a book called Save the Cat. And those books tended to be very restrictive. You start to do something on page one, page seven, page nine, page 15. And I've, I found that uh, happen when, when you did that, you ended up with the same cookie cutter ideas over and over again. And I wanted something that allowed writers and, and people in any creative field to be able to look at a process and go, okay, here are the technical steps I need in order to get from point A to point Z, but I can, I can meander a little bit in between and I can take some freedom to be creative. And I look at it, there's, um, in the book I have at one point, 12 steps that get you from point A to point Z, each one being about 10 pages. If you wrote 10 pages of each step, you've got about 120 pages and that's the standard length for a screenplay. But within that, there's this idea for me, I, I picture them as kind of buoys out in the water. And how I swim to those buoys is up to me. You know, how I get there is going to be part of the creative process. So it gives you kind of landmarks and, and goals to reach without saying, okay, you do it this way. Because when you do it that way, it then becomes derivative. 
that really resonates with me as a martial artist because of all the teaching I've received in martial arts over the years. Well, I started at six, so it's already been well over 30 years for me too. But one of the things that all the good martial arts instructors have in common is they gave me room to free play. They taught me all the marks I have to hit. You have to do these things. But outside of that, within like, let's say it's a comic book, within the gutters, within the spaces between the panels, this is your area to play. And if they restrict me from that, I can't do that. I don't even want to do it. What do I get to bring to this, right? And it sounds like that's another concept. Maybe, I don't know if you put it into it consciously or unconsciously, but that room to free play, I would think writers just need that because aren't they creatives? Yeah, I, I found that to be, you know, part of the deal is that, you know, the more that you were told you have to do this now, you have to do that now, it has to come, you know, again, you end up with stories that are derivative and aren't as, uh, as free flowing. And on the other hand, when you're looking at books that are kind of, again, esoteric, where you're going, these are concepts that are very interesting, but it's not very practical. And, and that is part. And that, again, that came very much from my martial arts background, because part of what happened for me in this idea of going from, you know, what is my, what is my ultimate goal to what is the process to get to the goal? You want to have the ability to adapt because I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm very small. I'm a, a, you know, I'm short, I'm thin. Um, I couldn't do the same kind of moves that a guy that's like Teddy Rinner, who's the, you know, world judo champion right now is six, eight and 300 pounds. We are not going to be competitive with each other. So I have to know that I have the ability to adapt and use techniques that work for me in the way that they work for me. And, you know, there may be a move that you look at and say, well, the proper way to do this is X, Y, and Z, but I found if I do it this way, it works for me. And you want to be able to adapt to that move and use it for yourself. That doesn't make it wrong. And my feeling is uh, uh, when I teach martial arts, I teach the fundamentals, but I always say competitors do this different ways and you have to find what works for your body size and what your opponent's doing. And the way they move, how are they, how are they defending against you? And then you put, you implement it the way that you think works best for you. It reminds me of that Taoist notion of like the way you do one thing is the way you do all things. Yeah. And it sounds like the way you teach martial arts is the same way you teach screenwriting. And I think anybody who's done martial arts, even if they've never been explicitly told that mm -hmm. if they've been in it over 20 years, they just eventually just be like, man, it's too much work to come up with a different process for every one of these things. Let me just do it one way. Well, there's also, you know, depending on your background and how you come to the martial arts, how you come to your sport uh, and whether, and that I think this applies again across the board, whether it's, you know, sports, whether it's writing, whether it's acting, whether it's, you know, any endeavor that has some creativity to it. And I believe that martial arts has a lot of creativity to it. You know, one of the things that happens is you, you have to be able to adapt to the surroundings and to be able to say, okay, you know, I'm, I have to be fluid and in the moment, you know, if you're coming in and all you're doing is saying, I'm doing this move and your opponent has moved in a, in a direction that you can't attack that way, you're going to get hit. You're going to get taken down. You're going to get beat. So the idea that there is, you know, fluidity in the concept is important. And, and I, you know, as a competitor, one of the things I, I've found is that over the years, you know, you, you start to get to a place where, um, it's difficult to teach because everything you've done has become muscle memory. You know, you've been doing it for 20 years, 30 years, you've put in your 10,000 hours of mastery. And now, you know, it's just in you. 
And sometimes to sit down and break it down and say, how did I get to this moment? How did I get to this attack? How did I get to this move? Um, not only improves your own ability to do it, but it also allows you to teach and to share that. But it's not the easiest thing. There are a lot of competitors that can't, you know, they, they don't necessarily know how to teach what they do. You almost have to deconstruct your own process that you just do naturally. You're like, well, what the hell am I doing just naturally? Yeah. And, and frankly, again, going back to the idea that, you know, there's kind of the, you know, here's the, the technical way of doing something. That's not the things that I teach aren't necessarily the way that I do them. You know, I, I, I adapt for my own competitive nature then, and that doesn't make it necessarily the proper technique. So for instance, uh, you know, Osotogari, which is a major outer reaping throw, um, I teach that you, you know, the way very traditional, the way you enter shoulder to shoulder contact, you know, right hand lifting, left hand pushing back. But the way I do it, I may do it in a reaching Osotogari where I, I'm, I am staying back from the opponent and pulling to get them to stand up, then reaping the leg, then coming in and hopping in. So it's all, you know, it all, it again, it's amorphous to a certain degree. And again, you have these kind of guideposts that say, this is the right way to do it. Now make it work for yourself. What you were saying about those esoteric writing books, that reminds me a lot of esoteric books also in the martial arts, but also instructors who are very esoteric, where maybe they're just talking to you about energy systems and feeling this and that, whether it's talking about chi or just kind of some invisible feel that you have to be really sensitive and nuanced to notice. But it's just like, how do I throw this dude? Sometimes right. you also need that. If you just do stream of consciousness, yeah, there's a, there's a freedom to it. But then when somebody reads it, it might not be the most enjoyable and it might not go anywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the other side of it, you know, that you, you know, I, I've over the years as a teacher in screenwriting, I've often had, you know, students that have written a script and you look at it and go, it's not bad writing, but I don't know where the story's going. I don't know what your point is. I don't know where you're headed with it. And I used to have students who every now and then would say, well, can I just write something funny or can I just write something dramatic or can I? And it's, yeah, sure. Do you want people to see it? You know, so a part of what the element that's missing in those formulas is success. And then it becomes a question of what is your definition of success? And, and I, again, this is the same for me as martial arts as it is in, in, in writing or, or any of the, you know, the artistic endeavors. And that is that, you know, you define what is success for you. So if you're somebody who wants to go to the dojo and you want to get in shape, that's one level of success. If you want to go because you want to be social, that's another level of success. If you want to go because you want to become a world champion, that's a different level of success. And they all have different paths. And, you know, one of the things that is also true uh, about uh, the martial arts and screenwriting, I've, I've had, uh, I had a, a gentleman who wanted me to teach classes for him, do an interview with me. And he asked me, and this is a screenwriting class. He asked me, how do you write an Academy Award winning script? And my answer was, you don't. You don't write an Academy Award winning script. What you write is the best script you can write. And if you are lucky enough, the world agrees and it becomes an Academy Award winning script. The same thing happens with a competitor who comes to a dojo and says, I want to be the next world champion. You know, they're not in control of that. The competitor, the judges, your body type, your physicality, your natural ability, all that, that takes care of whether or not you are in fact going to become the next world champion. All you can do is train and learn the techniques and practice the techniques and master the techniques to the best of your ability and then apply them 
to the best of your ability in, in competition. There's no guarantees, you know? So the same thing goes back to this idea of being in the moment, sticking with the process, you know, focusing on what do I need to do to improve this move rather than how do I win? This reminds me of a trait that every good teacher I've ever had, whether it's in academia or also martial arts, is all the good teachers let the students define their own success. And all the bad teachers don't. They're very like rigid. And it's like, let me define why you're even training or why you're in my class. They define everything for you. And uh, why that's important is because then what do I get to do as a student? Right. Why don't you write my script for me? Yeah. Or why don't you go compete for me? Very much so. But then the, the second part of it is having trained martial arts for a long time and having taught it and also have people come up to me and ask questions, they'll ask me that thing that you brought up earlier. Well, why can't I do it this way? And I'm like, you can. And if you're just doing this as a martial artist, it's just an expression of who you are as an individual. You can do it this way and then you will lose. But if you want to lose while expressing yourself, that's great. But if your goal is to go compete at this tournament, that way you're doing it. You can do it. Nobody's stopping you, but you're not also free from consequences. Right. It might put you in a bad thing. So it always seems like uh, it's a balancing act of giving them room to play, but also telling them uh, however you define your success or whatever you're free to do, there's also consequences that come with it. And maybe is the way that you're playing in line with the success that you're defining for yourself when you're just thinking about it outside of the dojo or outside of the class. Maybe in class, you're trying to write freestyle. Why can't I just write a funny scene? But, but outside of the class, when you think about your process objectively, you're thinking about it more like, but I want to sell screenplays. But then you got to make it line up. Yeah. And, and that's, again, the same is true You know, when you're practicing martial arts, when, you're, when you are are tempting techniques. And sometimes, you know, you sometimes someone like once in a while, a Charlie Kaufman, who's a, a famous screenwriter comes up and they're, they think outside the box or, or Quentin Tarantino, for example, you know, his, his style of writing, his style of filmmaking is unusual and unique and specific. And it happens to be admi admirable. You know, he hit a formula that, that other people can't really hit. Fantastic. And there are martial artists that will be unorthodox, that will have that one technique that everybody says, you can't really do that technique because it puts you in this position and they're able to do it and do it well and, and succeed with it. And, you know, those things um, tend to stand out because when you, when you go outside the box, when your thinking is outside the box and you're able to do something that no one else does, I kind of use a baseball analogy, you know, that they're the guys who are making money doing movies, they're hitting, you know, line drives right down the middle. And the chances are, you know, they're going to get on base more often than anyone else. Also, the chances are they're going to get the ball caught. And the guys that are aiming for the corners and are looking right at the foul line, you know, if they're successful, they're going to hit a triple, you know, but they're going to be successful much less often. So, there are those people in the world too. There, there's a filmmaker here named uh, Henry Jaggle, and he does independent films, very interpersonal, you know, comedy dramas. They have a very small audience, but he makes them over and over and over again. He gets his friends that are all stars to be in them. They do very well, but they, you know, if you go to someone in the Midwest and say, hey, how many Henry Jaggle films have you seen? They're going to say, who, what, who's that? 
because it's not something that he reaches a, a massive audience for. You know, if I go to them and say, hey, did you see, you know, Avengers Endgame? Chances are I'm going to hit people that have seen it. So it really, again, goes back to this. What do you define as your success? And, you know, I, I know that many people go to the dojo and they think I want to be good at self-defense, you know, and coming into a dojo to be, uh, to be proficient in self-defense, that's a high bar and people don't realize they think, you know, I can study karate or I can study judo or I can study jujitsu and, you know, six months I'll be able to defend myself. And it's just, that's not, that's not realistic, but the idea that if I'm, if that's what I'm there for. I'm going to do the very best I can to defend myself against an attacker. So you just kind of look at what it is that you want to accomplish. Actually, that reminds me of one thing that drives me crazy about martial arts, especially martial arts competitions that isn't like that in Hollywood or even in sports. So you gave the baseball analogy and you gave the analogy of Tarantino. Yeah. But in martial arts, let's say competitive judo, if there's one guy who's doing some move that nobody can defend, it always feels like then they come up with some rule, like you can't do that anymore. A lot anymore. of time, yeah. And uh, the rest of the world, they don't do that. What in martial arts, they might. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I, one, of the, one of my pet peeves about judo, and judo is my, my main sport and the one that I've been doing since I was six years old and that I love. Um, the rules have changed dramatically over the last few years, um, in big part because of the rise of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I think, and also... Uh, the influence of European judo, it's still very much controlled by the Kodokan in Japan and the idea that they want the sport to be um, very traditionalist. But they outlawed one of the most basic portions of the sport that you can't touch the leg while standing. It's illegal. That was never the case when I was a kid. And you would often do, uh, you know, there's a throw called tegaruma, where when somebody comes in for a forward throw, you pick them up from between the legs and, and lift them and throw. Wasn't that one of the fundamentals too? Like Very much. The there's, there's a katagaruma, which is a fireman's carry in wrestling. It was absolutely, it's actually one of the nine throws in the first nage no kata, the, the, the form that you learn in order to get your promotions from the day you start judo um and they it's where you if you know fireman's carry it's where you you basically bend down and put somebody over your shoulder and pick them up and you have one arm between their legs and one arm on their sleeve as if you were a fireman carrying somebody out of a burning exactly bed. and when they outlawed touching the leg that made that throw illegal and uh, but for and for a while uh, it was so so stringent that if you touch the leg even inadvertently that was it they they you were you were disqualified for the match i want uh travis stevens who is a, an olympian in judo after the after i think he took silver in the olympics after he took silver in the olympics came back to fight in the national championships the f first year that they they implemented this rule and his first match he touched a guy on the leg and was disqualified and that was it um the first year i competed in that with that new rule in my division at the national championships the the competitor took second that year won four matches without having to beat anybody because they were all disqualified so he went into the finals not having won a single match so so yeah 100% and you know i it goes back um in the 1970s and i was competing back then they had um uh, 
they had a guy who at the national championships won, I think, nine matches using a flying armbar. And, you know, you have to look at it at this for a little bit for the safety of the competitors. He broke nine arms. So the next year that was outlawed. Um, there's a throw called Kane Basame, which is a flying scissor throw. Very effective, but very dangerous for knees. So they outlawed that. So a lot of it comes from, from you know, well, safety. Touching the leg does not. That was something that they went, oh, the European competitors who come from Sambo and wrestling are using this fireman carry and it's not pretty. It's not pretty judo. So they outlawed it because they wanted to force people to do the big throws, to be the spectacular throws, the the throws that are called Uchimara and, you know, Murote um, Sanagi or Sorisuri Kuengoshi. These are all Japanese names, but, you know, that, that they were spectacular throws. And that's really what they wanted to get back to. And, and, and now, actually, the sport does have more spectacular throws, but at, at what cost? Because it's no longer the same martial art. So going back to screenwriting. Yeah. Let's say I want to write movies and have never read a book about screenwriting. Why should I read a book about writing? Why don't I just write? The, the short answer is you absolutely can. The longer answer is going back to this idea of what is success and what do you want? What's your goal? Now it comes down to, you know, compare it to somebody who's a martial artist and say, okay, you know, why do I have to take a class? Why can't I just fight? Okay, go ahead. You know, good luck. And if you're just happen to be a badass, fantastic. You you may win. On the other hand, if you run into somebody who's pretty good at what they do, you're going to get your butt kicked. So it's the same kind of thing with with writing or any any kind of thing. So um, the one thing that I tried to do with my book, and and if I may be so bold as to restate the name, it's Process to Product, uh, a practical guide to screenwriting. It's available at Amazon. Is I tried to take you from. I have an idea. I have a concept. How do I how do I structure it? How do I come up with the idea from beginning to end? And how do I structure it? Because one of the things that that goes back to this idea of okay, I'm a fighter. I just want to brawl. I just want to get into a fight. I'm just going to go into a bar and I'm going to start fight. Um, you know that's great unless somebody has a knife or a gun, or if there are three of them, or you know on and on and on. And what changes is structure. How do I structure my fights in, in a martial arts setting, in a boxing ring, in a, you know, on a mat, there's structure, there's rules, there's, there's confinement, right? That way we don't have people, you know, MMA is one of the, you know, gnarliest, nastiest, most brutal sports out there, but you don't hear about people getting killed in the ring, you know? I mean, I'm sure it happens, but it's rare. Why is it so rare? Well, because they have rules, Um, you know, they have a limited amount of rounds. Um, in fact, some people, and, and I think there's some real argument here to be made that, that MMA is much safer than boxing. In boxing, I get repetitive strikes to the head over and over again, over a longer number of rounds. The damage to my, my cranium is a lot greater, you know? So it's that structure. So when you go to learn anything new, there's a process that you want to kind of take into your your bones. And we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, uh, muscle memory and the idea that there's a, a path to mastery. There's a, a number of hours you have to put in. And the same is true, whether it's writing, acting, uh, judo, karate, taekwondo, you know, any martial art that you want to be able to kind of get to a place where you have that move down in your, 
in your very bones and that don't have to think about it. And the same is true with when you're doing writing and screenwriting. So the book gives you these tools and they're just tools to be able to say, okay, this is how a character develops. These are the things that tend to be uh, common in all story. This is kind of the way that that story structure unfolds. Now I can play with that form and come up with something unique and, and individual for myself. Actually, I like where this is headed because not only is there stuff that applies to just martial arts and thinking like a better martial artist and using writing as the analogy for martial arts competition, but also martial arts as the analogy for good writing. Because one of the things that I thought about from listening to you just now is this idea of structure and system. So you were just talking about structure of a screenplay and also structure of competition, right? Judo has its rules. That's the structure that you don't get to define. Judo already has already defined it. MMA has rules. Boxing has rules. That's the structure that you don't get to define. But that's not it because that's the bare minimum. But what makes you a really good competitor is on top of structure, you have your system. So one of the things that judo and jiu-jitsu have in common is every good competitor, the first thing they're thinking, maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, but in jiu-jitsu in particular, the first thing you're thinking is your system of grips. Mm -hmm. What are the first grips I'm going to get? Absolutely. And how you even get the sleeve grips, if they put their hand here, I'm doing this. If they step here, I do that, right? And then once you get the grips, how do I get my hips to face him and his hips to face mine in a certain angle, right? You're nodding your head, so it sounds like that also applies to judo. Every jiu-jitsu competitor thinks that way also. Maybe they've never deconstructed their own system, but they all have systems. MMA is the same thing. MMA has all these rules. In boxing, there's some parallel. What's the first thing when you get out there? What's your system? The first thing most good fighters do is circle them in a way so that if I go forward, I'm pushing you towards my corner where my corner men are. So now I'm facing the opposite way that I came out. The first thing we both do is turn the opposite direction. So my eyes are now looking at my corner and my opponent's eyes are looking at the other side. And if you don't even know that part of the system, which is just like the bare minimum, and you only know the rules, then you're already fucked, right? right? And then after that, it's a system of footwork, jabs, boxing, and MMA. It all starts from there. And then you build out. That's your system. The rules don't tell you to do that. That's something you have to figure out on your own. And it sounds like also on top of writing, here's the general structure of how scripts should look, first act, second act, third act. But what's your system? What's your style? Like when somebody reads a Tarantino script or a, a Brian script, there should be a certain style where like they look at the script and it says by whoever, right? And if you already have a name for yourself, they already kind of know. I don't know the genre, but I kind of know the style, right? So that's something you also have to develop that people might not think about is what's your system? What's your style as a martial artist or as a writer? And, and that goes hand in hand with execution. Because, you know, once, once you have the moves, once you understand the moves, now you have to execute them. And that's the same in, in writing as well. So, you know, it's fine to know, okay, what, what are the, what are the parameters for structure? What are the parameters for dialogue? What are the parameters for character? But then you've got to be able to implement what the, what the, and that's the X factor. That's the question. Same again, uh, going back to, you know, the parallels, the same in martial arts. So, you know, that I know how to strike or I know how to, how to, you know, apply a a choke. Great. But that doesn't mean I'm going to get it. You know, we practice over and over and over again, these moves, um, you know, whether it's a triangle or whether it's an arm bar, or whether it's a choke or whether it's a throw, 
we practice them. But that doesn't mean that in in execution, they're successful. So it's the people that find the way to make the execution successful. And that has to do with how do I move my opponent to my advantage? And in most martial arts, that's what it is. You're talking about, you know, boxing and moving around so that, you know, I'm looking into my corner so I can get instructions. That's the same kind of thing. You know, boxers are often talking about cutting off the ring. How do I, you know, ring generalship? That's not part of the structure. That's part of, you know, the knowledge of the individual. And the same is with judo or, or jiu-jitsu. And, uh, and, and when, when I talk about jiu-jitsu, generally I'm talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And, and the one thing about that, judo and jiu-jitsu, in my opinion, they're the same martial art, different sports. So they have, they, you know, you go back and look at the foundation of where they came from. You know, it was Jigoro Kano created judo. Uh, Maeda took uh, judo to the United States and then eventually to, um, to Brazil. And at that point, he had developed slightly different moves, but it was really fundamentally judo. And then they focused more on the submissions and on uh, the the uh, wrist locks, arm locks, you know, leg locks, chokes, and judo stayed with the throws, sport wise. But you go back to the core; it's still the same martial art. So for me, they, they're very simpatico, very much the same the same martial art. Another thing about Kano is he's the one who invented the belt system. Yeah, we all think the belt system in all of our martial arts, right, have been around thousands of years. And it's like, no, maybe a hundred, but it was like Kano instituted that for judo and then every other martial art yeah. implemented it. And now we all think, oh yeah, black belt has always meant that. That belt has always meant that. And it's yeah. like, no. Well, you know, the one thing people don't realize is that prior to the invention of judo by Kano, and he, he, he created in 1882. And prior to that, he was a jiu-jitsu pr practitioner, and he was an educator. And he wanted to bring this system of jiu-jitsu to schools, but he wanted to find a way to do it so that he could do it safely. And because prior to that, jiu-jitsu was really truly a martial art. In other words, the idea was, uh, this is for battle, and this is not for, for sport. So he wanted to make it a sport that he could share with students. And he did, and he did it in a way that you know was extremely successful. In fact, you know they had competitions back then where judo um, beat the jiu-jitsu guys and they went, oh, there may be something to that. And then judo slowly became the sport, uh, of Japan because it was, because it was implemented in schools and because there was a way of ranking and, and kids could get rewarded for working hard and they got a belt and they were excited about that. And that's still what motivates a lot of competitors and a lot of kids today. You know, the idea, if I stay at this long enough, I'll get my yellow belt. And if I do really well, I'll get my blue belt. And if I do really well on and on, and, and that goal that, that, uh, you know, that ultimate goal of getting the black belt. A lot of people, whatever their martial art is, and maybe certain martial arts more than others, they think about, wait a minute, the philosophy of this martial art and martial arts seems incongruent with the philosophy of the belt and they can never figure out, then how did they come up together? Well, now, you know, they didn't actually come up together. It was an educator who had to motivate students and especially young people in school how to do it. So if you think of it in that context, yeah, it makes sense. It's something we adopted later on, but it kind of ultimately is incongruent, but it also kind of works. It gets yeah. people to stick with it and it gives them a goal and those kind of things. Yeah, it definitely does. Now, are most would-be writers pretty bad at first from your experience? You know, they're all over the map uh, and, and not just, you know, first starting out, sometimes, you know, writers that have been at it for 30, 40 years are, are not very good. 
are the ones who are bad, are they all pretty bad in the same ways? No. No. Everybody, everybody has their own, they all have their own path. Um, you know, sometimes it has to do with uh, story logic, character logic, structure. Sometimes it's, you know, somebody just doesn't have a good ear for dialogue. Sometimes it's, you know, um, I hate to say it, you know, with ageism, sometimes it has to do with just being out of touch with what's current and, and how modern stories are told. Um, and then, you know, on the opposite side, it's sometimes just inexperienced people, you know, with their youth, they don't quite have the experience to really say, this is what this person experiences and how they feel and how they move through life. For me, the one thing that I tend to see more often than others is a lack of story logic and character logic. Why is that person behaving the way that they're behaving? Why is the story unfolding the way it unfolds? And is it motivated and clear? Can you follow the logic of the, of the universe, of the world that they're in? The reason why I asked about, are they all bad in the same way? Or if there's at least one thing that runs across the board is because in martial arts, there's a lot of ways you could be bad. Everybody brings their own idiosyncratic way that they could be awful at the beginning, or maybe they've been doing it for a while and they're still kind of bad. But one thing I've noticed that a lot of them have in common is a lot of the ones who are bad are bad listeners. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered if that also applied to writing, like they just can't take notes or, or criticism. You or know, I, I hadn't really thought of it like that, but I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I can tell you that there have been, there have been times when I've had, you know, a writer that I've worked with and I've given them notes and they've come back with another draft and the same problems appear or, or even where they've changed the script dramatically, but it's the same issue, you know? The, the logic isn't there. The characters aren't working. They're not making sense. You know, things are happening that, that don't, un you can't understand how they got from, you know, here to there. Um, you know, but you, you, the other, you know, you mentioned something that made me think of the old, the old uh, catchism that, um, you know, style makes matches, style makes boxing matches, you know, that, that it's really, it's about the style that, you know, that really makes it interesting. And everybody does have their own style and it does, you know, that's what sets you apart is your unique individuality in your, in your writing and in your, and in your martial arts. So you got a book, you have a career in Hollywood, which is like the dream for many movie lovers. So at 61, going to be 62, not that far from now. No. And with a serious and established career, what the hell are you doing still competing? You know, I ask myself that every time I get on the mat. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a couple of things. I, I competed as a, you know, uh, I, was a, I was a fairly high level competitor in my early 20s. Um, I I was a you know national champion in the youth championships and junior Olympic champion, and then um, went to Japan to train. And my goal was to make the Olympic team, in 1980, and I got to as far as the Olympic trials. And in the 1980 uh, trials, two weeks before the trials, I, I blew up my ACL, my uh, knee, had to have it reconstructed. Was that your first major injury? No, but, but it was the biggest, it was the biggest injury. I've, I'd had other knee surgeries and, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, ripped up ankles and shoulders and, you know, anything that the one thing about judo is it's, it's a fairly rough sport. The, the, you know, it's a full on contact sport and you're, you're getting thrown when people are landing on you and, and things tend to break. The ACL, this was in the eighties. We're not in the eighties anymore. So there's a lot more time since then. Yeah, I spent nine months uh, in a non-weight-bearing cast. They don't do that anymore. So 
it took me four years to come back from that injury. And then over the years, you know, I got married, I had kids, I did other things. And for about 12 years, I, I competed uh, internationally in the 80s and I re-injured my knee and had to have surgery again. And uh, not the ACL, but the uh, cartilage. And for a while, I kind of stepped away from competition for about 12 years. And then in, uh, in about 2004, I think, I got the bug again. And part of it came from um, an advancement in, in sports medicine. And one that I had heard about for many years, but hadn't tried, which was prolotherapy. You were the guy who got me first into prolotherapy. And since then, I've done PRP stem cells. So for listeners, I first met Brian around 17 years ago in judo. So we go way back. And the other weird thing is, it's not like I see him all the time, but every time I see him, I'm thinking to myself, oh, his competitive days are over. And then I found out he just competed again. Yeah. It's like, okay, 50s, it's going to be over. Okay, now 60s, it's going to be over. And then you're like, are you a crazy person? I, are you I, a I masochist? Am. And here's the real crazy thing, Sam. You know, I, I, uh, I fought this year, 61, I fought at the United States National Judo Championships in the master's division. Um, but when you're my size and my age, you tend to outlive everybody. So I didn't have anybody to fight. So I, I ended up fighting, um, I think, two divisions down in age. Um, they, it doesn't count toward the championship. They hand you a medal, you know, if you're, if you're alone in the division, but I, I won that match, but I also fought in the seniors. So I fought, um, I fought a kid who was, I think 16 years old. So I, I continue to fight with the kids as well as the adults, which is probably, that's probably insane. That's probably not, you know, I should probably have my head examined for that, but I do it for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I fight at the same weight I fought uh, you know, 40 years ago. And it motivates me to stay in shape. It motivates me to keep moving. And I'm a big believer that, you know, one of the biggest aging mechanisms is uh, lethargy, is sloth, you know, not getting up, not moving, not taking care of yourself in that way. And you know, I, do I pay for it in other ways? Yes, I do. I get, you know, my neck is killing me. My back is killing me. My knees are killing me. My shoulders are killing me, but I stay in shape. And I, you know, at 61, I feel like I'm, I'm in pretty good condition. And for listeners, you can't see him, but he's got great hair. <laughs> he's got his teeth. He's got flat abs, you know, he's doing pretty good. So far, knock on wood, man. So I still compete. Um, I'm, I started uh, I started competing in jujitsu about uh, probably 10 years ago. And I had a friend uh, from New York who is a two-time Olympian in judo named uh, Temak Johnston. Ono. Temak is a, I think he's an eighth-on in judo and had been um, not only national champion in judo, but national champion and world champion in, uh, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he works uh, with, uh, I think, Hoist Gracie uh, in New York. And Tamak for years had been saying to me, you know, you should do jujitsu. It's not as hard on the body. And I went, oh, yeah, jujitsu, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it just didn't, you know, never dawned on me. And then when I did the prolotherapy and I started to come back and I was winning national championships in judo and um, then uh, I, you know, continued when I, I fought at the world championships uh, for masters, not, not the kids, but the masters won, um, you know, a couple of gold medals there. 2016 uh, fought against the Russians and the French and um, won that tournament. I I started looking at you know 
yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting old. I'm getting beat up. I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. So I started looking at jujitsu and I went to a jujitsu dojo and I went, hey, this is judo only without throws. I can do this. So I started getting into jujitsu and I've been competing there uh, for the last few years and just fought in, uh, when it was April, I guess, uh, the Pan American Jiu-Jitsu Championships, where again, in my division, my age, there weren't any competitors. So I ended up fighting in the open division and I fought two guys. Uh, I'm, I am 5'4 and 138 pounds. And I fought a guy who was 6'5 and 235, uh, 220, and a guy who was 6'1 and 235 and beat both of them. Uh, and took gold at the Pan Am Jiu-Jitsu Championships. I'll be fighting at the World Jiu-Jitsu Championships uh, at the end of this month. So I, I, and that's those are all master competitions. So it's you know apples and apples. Uh, I'm not I'm not pushing myself too far in that direction. But again, it's one of the things that you know you look at master athletes, and they're motivated to take care of themselves. They're motivated to deal with injuries. They 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 get into the doctor to have things checked out when things are wrong. So. I think it's a win-win for people, whatever their sport is, to stay active, to stay moving, uh, to continue to to kind of, you know, be. For me, the the thing about the competition is, I could go and do judo and jujitsu and go to the gym and not compete, but I wouldn't be motivated. And I've heard judokas who have competed at a very high level in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, they've said this, and you know, sometimes this pisses off you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors. And, you know, I've done a lot of martial arts and I identify more as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, even though that's not my first martial art. But I kind of tend to believe them when they say judo competition is harder than Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And they don't mean the, just the, the impact of the throws or on the body. They mean the level of competition and the general fitness of the competition. Uh, I, I think that's probably true. Um, you know, the, and the reason is, uh, it, just in my, you know, kind of off the top of my head opinion, you know, when you're most of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, is grappling on the mat. And so it's looking for submissions. That's mostly anaerobic. You know, I'm pushing muscle to muscle, right? Judo has a real strong aerobic component and then I'm moving. And that movement requires a level of conditioning that you don't need to have for jiu-jitsu. You know, if I'm in jiu-jitsu, uh, you know, I, I can kind of rest while I'm waiting for, you know, a technique to, to come up in judo. I'm constantly, I have, they, the rules are, are set up in such a way that you have to attack every 15 seconds. Um, if you don't do that, you get penalized three penalties, you're out. So you, you have to constantly be going after your opponent and there's no sitting back and, and just resting. And on the mat, when you get into grappling and that's where judo and jujitsu have a very strong overlap, uh, in judo, they only give you 10 seconds. So. I got 10 seconds on the ground. If I don't, if I don't start to implement a, a technique in that 10 seconds and it doesn't look like I'm in a position to finish, they stand you back up. So it's a little more aerobic than anaerobic in compared to jujitsu. And yeah, the, the other thing is the impact. Um, the way the throws are done, you do tend to get more injuries and it is a little tougher on the body. So you mentioned about advancements in sports medicine, but when did you first start getting into self-care? Like, I need to take care of myself. Like, I need to, I don't know, go get massages. I need to do, I don't know what you're doing. I'm just naming some stuff, but like uh, hot tubs or saunas. Like, because I could see people just being a tough guy. I don't need any of that. Also, the reason why I ask and I put an emphasis on being competitive is because I actually know a lot of people, you know, who've done martial arts as long as you, 
but you're the only one at your age who's still competing because everybody else, like they're on crutches, you know, they're hobbling around. Like they had their competitive Check with me tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. They, they had their competitive time, their era of competing. And then either they felt like I've been there, done that, and I'm done, or they never consciously mentally made that decision and their body made the decision for them. I know several people like that also where they have fake knees, fake hips, fuses on their necks and back. So why aren't you like that? Yeah. You know, a couple of things. Uh, so going back to, to when I got back into competition, um, actually going back to 1980, 1980, when I, when I tore my ACL, um, I before I had the surgery, I spent a year just trying to rehab it, just trying to get the leg in shape and see if I could overcome the lack of the anterior cruciate ligament. And uh, after a year of just really, really, you know, intense rehab and training, I found out that I couldn't and had to have the surgery. But that experience made me very interested in uh, physical therapy and in and the idea that you know how do you how do you a, avoid injury, and then probably as important is when you are injured, how do you take care of it? And one of the things that um, kind of the philosophically that I looked at uh, at the time that I was rehabbing the knee after surgery was there were quick healers and there were permanent healers. And I always wanted to be a permanent healer. Um, you know, I didn't care if it took me an extra three months to get back to where I was ready to compete again. I just wanted to make sure that I was ready. Um, and it was after that, that I started, you know, looking at how do you, how do you, uh, do everything from, you know, how do you tape an injury? How do you take care of it there? You know, what kind of, uh, exercises do you need to do that balance the muscle groups? You know, for me, I never really, when I would do weights or I'd go to the gym, I wasn't thinking about balance. I was thinking about, you know, how much can I bench press or, you know, how many, how many curls can I do? And I never thought, well, if I have big, really big biceps and I have really small triceps, am I going to have elbow injuries? Am I going to get, you know, are you, am I going to get tendonitis? Am I going to get tennis elbow? So I started looking at those things. Uh, and I started thinking about making sure that I was balancing my weight workouts and my aerobic workouts and making sure that there was some conscious effort and thought put into why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and I actually, I do the same thing on, on the mat with judo or jujitsu, you know, in terms of the warm ups. there's, you know, one thing that, that there's not a lot of focus on is the, almost all of the warm ups that we do for martial arts, there is a technique behind them that's related to something we do on the mat. And a lot of times it's just, well, do this just to warm up. And so for me, it's more about how do I connect those two? You know, what's the connective tissue that makes them go together? So um, I've started doing prolotherapy. Uh, prolotherapy changed my life uh, in a lot of ways. When did you start? 2004. So it took me a long time. I'd been hearing about it. I had a friend who is a, uh, uh, also a two-time Olympian in judo and uh, a Pan-American judo champion. And he um, is a chiropractor who works with uh, alternative medicines and was doing prolotherapy in his office. And he kept saying, oh, this is the, this great thing and it's wonderful. And I, I thought, I don't want people sticking needles in me like that. That sounds horrible. And finally, I, I had actually a shoulder injury that was keeping me from doing you know, kind of everyday things like throwing a ball to my kids or, you know, th kicking, throwing a ball to my dog. And I went, 
that's no good. I got to do something about that. And I, I went to a, a prolotherapist and this was something that had been a chronic injury that I'd been dealing with for six months or a year, had prolotherapy and went, Hey, you know what? I think, I think my shoulder's better. And then it was now, not only do I think my shoulder is better, I can do everything that I couldn't do before. And I went, yeah, I wonder if this will work on other body parts. I did it with my knees. And, uh, prior to that point, when I got on the mat, I had a Lennox Hill, um, knee brace, you know, metal knee braces, which couldn't compete with. And I would have to strap up and, you know, and people would complain because they'd get hit by the knee braces. Hey, you know, what's that? You got metal on you. I'd say, yeah, <laughs> protecting my knee. And after that, I went, hey, you know what? I think I can get back on the mat. And I did. That was 2004. I won the master's division at the U.S. Nationals and competed in the seniors. Um, 2005, 2006, 2007. I, I, I have lost matches. I have not. I've always placed at the nationals every every time I've competed um, since that time. So for people who don't know what prolotherapy is, it's basically injecting ultimately sugar water into your system. And what it's trying to be is an irritant. It's trying to cause inflammation. And like I mentioned earlier, Brian is the one who got me down that rabbit hole. And then after that, I started researching the whole idea of how this works. I always thought inflammation is bad. How can that be good? I read a lot of stuff, but basically with prolotherapy, what the inflammation does is finally, especially for your joints, which doesn't get a lot of blood flow, it finally forces blood into that area to start the healing. But what that also does is as the blood goes there, so do some of your stem cells also go there to try to help the healing process. And since then, since prolo, there's been more advancements. And uh, I early on trained really stupid and I injured myself very quickly. And also I think some people are just tend to be more injury prone, like just get injured easier. And I was on top of that, somebody who tended to get injured easier. And on top of that, osteoarthritis runs in my family. I started developing that very early and also have very severe scoliosis. So I was never in alignment. All these things combined together, I was getting hurt all the time. I tore both my knees out. My, my neck had bulging discs. I mean, it's not had, <laughs> you should just have them, right? My back, every major injury, it seems like other than breaking bones, I've broken bones before, but not in martial arts. Actually, no, never mind. I have done that also. <laughs> So I thought at some points I was done. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Right. And I think that's when I approached you about what are you doing? And this was like decades ago. And that's when you told me about Prolo. So for same thing for me, if I didn't do that, I would have been done. I would have had to stop because it's not just the, the fact that you're injured and you're not strong. It's also the excruciating pain. It just, it just sucks. And, and I, I do, I do deal with that. I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm still in pain, but I'd be in pain if I didn't, I mean, if, if I didn't compete, I would have the same yeah. nagging injuries. In fact, I find that if I'm not working out, the things that are, are uncomfortable tend to be worse, but prolotherapy has worked, uh, wonders for me. It's not for everybody. No, there's some people I sent and I was shocked. How could something that worked for me didn't work for you? Yeah. A lot of times it doesn't, but, and, and you mentioned PRP and stem cells, which are kind of the you know, the, the next level of, uh, of this concept of, you know, repairing damaged tissue, the stem cell is fascinating. It's not yet. I don't think quite there, um, in terms of scientifically, you know, really be being vetted, 
But the idea behind it, you know, that you can talk to a cell and say, hey, this area needs to be repaired, go repair it. I'm just not sure how how the cells that you're, and it's very expensive and the cells that you're doing, you know, how, how they know, how they determine where they go. But um, that's still a mystery to me. But they, I know that they're, they're doing a lot of interesting things. The guy that I, I work with, uh, Dr. Jim Woolley, one of the things that he does is he's looking at growth factors and uh, they're adding that to their prolotherapy. Have you done PRP at all yet? I haven't yet. Because yeah. then you're still not messing with stem cells. It's right. just like a stronger version. It's yeah. the same idea of prolo exactly, except so if you don't know what that is, is platelet-rich plasma. So with prolo, it causes irritation, that blood flow I was talking about where it sends blood to uh, joints that normally don't get blood. What it's really sending there is your body sending plasma, right? Platelet-rich plasma. But instead of like trying to trigger something where your body sends it there, what they do is they take blood from you, they spin it until they get the platelet-rich plasma out and isolate it, and then they inject that directly into it. So they're basically doing the same thing as Prolo, except cutting out the middleman and just doing it directly. Yeah, and it's, I mean, and again, you know, each each step up the the ladder is also a step up the the cost. Oh yeah, you go from hundreds to the thousands, and then and then the stem cells is you know ten tens of thousands, and you know it's it's one of those things where you hope that eventually there will be, you know, some, the insurance companies will start to pay for these things for right now. They're not doing it. They don't. And, uh, but, but actually prolotherapy is a fairly, you know, compared to everything else is it's fairly reasonable price wise. So that's yeah. something that you can do if you're, if you're a weekend warrior and you want to, you want to take care of an injury. Well, the only reason why I had to switch and do other stuff is it sounds like it hasn't affected you, but other people I know have been in the same boat as me where they responded really well to Prolo for years. And then all of a sudden stop, it stopped working. Yeah, it, that happens too. You know, you get to a, a point where either your, your body, I don't know if it's your body going, Hey, Oh, that again, I've got, I'm used to it. Or, or if it just simply is, you know, the injury has gotten to a place where it's no longer repairable by, you know, by that method. So, um, you know, there's great hope for stem cell in the future. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the time when it's uh, affordable and I can do it and go in and have it done. I'll I'll do it. I call I I do what I call the dip when I do uh, p- uh, prolotherapy, which means I go basically ankle to top of the head. So if I'm waiting for that for stem cells, so I can go in. Yeah, I used to. I think we might have gone to some of the same people, but it wouldn't be just one site. No, it would just be from my feet all the way up to my neck. It would just be so many injection sites, and I would leave. It's weird. You're sore, but you feel more stable. That's the other weird thing is usually you think about stretching an area and that feels better. But in actuality, a lot of my joint areas after prologue feels tighter, but more stable. It depends on how the injury happens or what the state of your injury is. But if it's because it's an unstable joint, it has too much wobble. What Prolo does is it feels like somebody just went in there with a wrench and just tightened something up, which sounds like just like inflammation, sounds like something you don't want to do. You don't want yeah. it tighter. You don't want it inflamed, but actually it just feels so much better afterwards. Well, th- there's actually, I mean, my understanding is one of the specific things about prolotherapy is they're often, they're often injecting directly onto the, the soft tissue that's affected in ligament or, or tendon. And when they do that, it's the ligament or the tendon that's swelling. And, and that's almost literally what they're doing. It's actually tightening that. Uh, and they did, they did some uh, cadaver studies with uh, uh, pork with pigs. And one of the things they found is that they were actually seeing like a 30% increase in the diameter of the tissue 
and a 200% uh, percent increase in, in the tensile strength. So, you know, the amount of force they had to put on it to actually break the, the tendon and ligament. So there were some scientific studies that were done by this group that I go to that, you know, kind of proved that in fact, it does exactly what the, it's intended to do. And it has to do with, you know, how, and a lot of it has to do with how good is the person who's doing the prolotherapy? How on target are they? You know, is the area that needs to be, you know, affected, being affected, things like that. And another thing that blew my mind and sent me down another rabbit hole, which makes me so much more better informed because I had to like replace the information that I lost, which was when they told me not to ice, mm. right? Like after you get it, they're like, don't ice that area. Right, right. Don't ice it. Don't take any ibuprofen. Don't take yeah. any anti-inflammatory. So all the stuff that you were always told before when you're injured or whatever, that you're like, what? Why can't I ice? And, and it, it made me go down the whole like inflammation rabbit hole. It's such a buzzword now. It's like inflammation is bad. It can be bad, but it's also part of the healing cycle. Like my body tends to be like, even if I tear something, it does not even swell up. So it really doesn't heal. So it needs something there to get the blood flow there to start the healing process. There's been new research done about, should you ice all the time? It's more like you should ice some of the time, right? but not all the time. I'm, I'm kind of a believer of all things in moderation. Yeah. <laughs> You might be listening to this like, oh, I'm going to go out and just do all this stuff as a miracle cure. And it's like, no, I know a lot of people, it didn't help at all. It doesn't do anything. What I will say is I'm not one of those people who just is like self-diagnosing or is afraid to get actual diagnoses from the doctor. I've gotten like millions, not just x-rays, just tons of actual MRIs. And I'm not somebody who gets claustrophobic. So you could put me in there. I just fall asleep. It's not a problem. So if they say MRI, no problem. So when I tore my knee and they saw the tear with the MRI and then post prolo, and then they MRI it again, the tear disappeared. And the same thing happened when I did PRP, there was a tear, they did PRP, they MRI it again and it disappeared. So for me, yeah, it actually worked. Yeah. It's not just like me feeling better, but there's actual MRI to show that it did work, but there's other people didn't do shit. Yeah. No. And it, it you know, who knows why, you know, that's, but it's certainly one of the things that, you know, if it's something that you have an injury and you want to continue in whatever sport you're in, you know, and rather than just giving up, you know, it gives you some hope that there's things out there you can try. And, and you know, things, one of the things that kind of convinced me to go try prolotherapy is uh, C. Everett Koop, who is the uh, Surgeon General of the United States at the time. This was way back in the day. Yeah, this is, he, he was a real proponent of it. He was a skeptic at first. Yeah, but he, but he, you know, and, and what was fascinating is you had a lot of orthopedic surgeons. And of course, this is, you know, kind of where the, the money part comes in going, oh, no, 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 you know, that's no good. It's, it's voodoo. It doesn't do anything. But here's the guy who's the head of the, you know, the health uh, of the, of the nation saying, no, there's something to this. And I, so that, that gave me a little bit of confidence to say, okay, maybe there is something to this. And I went and checked it out. And also people who were in regenerative medicine, this is what we're talking about. They were the first ones way back in the day to say, scoping, don't scope it. It's terrible. You don't have to do prolo. You don't have to do any of the stuff, but scoping will not make the knee stronger or whatever you're scoping. And now in 2019, most orthopedists who are worth their reputation and their name rarely ever scope anymore. Mm. You know, you almost have to talk them into scoping that. Oh, interesting. Or you're an athlete and you're like, I just need to get out there. But otherwise, like if you go to, you know, any of the good orthopedic places here in LA, they rarely do scoping. So that has changed yeah. even in the last 10 years. 
Yeah. So let's go into your origin story because we've been kind of uh, talking around it. Mm -hmm. How did you get into martial arts in the first place? I know you started at six years old, but what state was it in? Because depending on where you were, you know, some places didn't even have judo or it was like really bad judo or they only had karate. So where did it all start and how did it start? It was my brother uh, and I both got into judo at the same time. My brother is a year and a half older. And uh, we had an eye doctor who had diagnosed my brother with dyslexia. And the, the doctor had recommended that he take some sport that would increase his eye-hand coordination. And being good parents, my parents said, well, if, you're, if he has dyslexia, so do you. <laughs> so we, we ended up both uh, looking for some sport. And we went, the, the doctor had mentioned karate, judo, and boxing. And we had never heard of karate or judo. Knew what boxing was, but there was a judo tournament taking place that weekend in our city in Houston, Texas, and we went to the, to the tournament and we thought that looked like the most fun you could possibly have. So we went home and just beat the crap out of each other. We threw each other all over the all over the living room, and uh, not knowing what we were doing, just look you know kind of pretending like we knew what we were doing. So we went to this dojo. It was a, a gentleman named Carl Geis. Um, Carl passed away a couple of years ago. He was, uh, uh, one of few people in the world that was awarded a 10th on in judo, um, had at one point, one of the greatest judo teams in the, in the nation when I was there competing, including the doctor who does my prolo actually was a, a teammate of mine in Houston, Texas when I was six years old. And what year was this? This was 1964. So give people context how lucky that was, because in the 60s, a lot of cities didn't even have judo. And if they did, it was bad. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, it, you know, judo, judo at the time, uh, and, you know, in some ways it was, it was more popular than it is now in some ways, in that there were a lot of people in, in the big cities, you know, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, all had really robust judo. Um, Carl was the only, at that time, the only judo dojo in Houston. Carl had been trained in Japan and studied for many years there. Um, and his technique was terrific. He was re- and, and he was really a technician. He was somebody who really focused on technique and he was really kind of a, a, a judo philosopher. He was somebody who really looked at, you know, what makes a technique work. He was really into, uh, perfecting technique and explosive judo, but with very, soft hands so there wasn't a lot of strength used in his martial arts and he was also one of the the highest ranking tomiki aikido uh practitioners in the country and for the listeners who can't imagine maybe an era where judo was more popular than other martial arts that had all to do with the military so judo was brought over by the gis who were going to uh japan and even actually before there was a lot of uh back and forth with the u.s before the war the other martial arts came via movies. Yeah. So that's why judo had the initial jump start. Well, interesting. You know, I don't know how much your, your listeners know, but uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, actually studied judo with Jigoro Kano. Yeah. In like the 19, in the teens, like 1918. And he commissioned a team of judokas to come from Japan to teach at West Point. And one of those was a guy named Maeda. And Maeda, um, kind of, he, he competed against uh, the wrestling team at West Point, and not knowing what wrestling was, he armbarred the guy, 
and lost face. And they, they decided not to teach at West Point. He ended up in New York. From New York, ended up going to Brazil, where he taught the Gracies judo. But they called it, at that time, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so that was kind of how the path of Brazilian jiu-jitsu came about. And Maeda was a student of Kano's, and Roosevelt was. So it had been introduced to the country through Roosevelt, actually, and didn't really catch on until after, after World War II. Um, and at that time, there really, I, I think the first, you know, serious judo competitors in the United States didn't really start to come about until probably till about 1964, 1964, the Tokyo Olympics. And we had our first judo team compete. We had a, a one medalist guy named Jim Bregman took a bronze medal at the Olympics. So yeah, very early on in the history of U.S. judo. And uh, Carl was was an anomaly. He was, um, you know, kind of an oasis in the middle of nowhere. But he built a fantastic uh, judo team. He was a you know a, a black belt magazine you know, hall of famer and taught for many many years. And like I said, just passed away not that long ago. But there were there were names that are well known in the judo world who were uh, you know students for his that uh, some who some who are still with us and some who aren't. But um, he was the one who taught judo, and he also was a traditionalist as well. So he, he often, if he his competitors were showing promise, he would encourage them to go to Japan. So I, at eight, 17, I graduated from uh, high school and went to Tokyo and spent a year training in, in Tokyo and in, in Japan. When you were training in Houston under him, how many days a week did you train? Because when I talked to a lot of people who were training in the 60s, back then, for a lot of people, depending on the martial art, training three times a week, one hour at a time was considered a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was probably three three times a week. And it may have been, I don't remember if it was an hour and a half, two hours, um, but three times a week. Um, then eventually, uh, they added Saturdays, so it'd be four times a week. And you know, at that time, you didn't you didn't think about cross training. So you didn't think about, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to run. But Carl's uh, ex-wife was a ballet teacher, and he actually had classes where he would do ballet bar, had a ballet bar put in his dojo. He was absolutely kind of uh, ahead of the curve in terms of his thinking. He was one of the first person that I ever saw that had a sprung mat. Um, he had, uh, it was a, a mat, tarp covered mat with, you know, and it wasn't, so it wasn't wrestling mats. It was a real judo mat. Um, he had, uh, he created a harness that you could hang from, uh, kind of like a parachute harness that, so you could throw that hung from the ceiling. You could take somebody and throw them without throwing them. Um, he did all kinds of things like that, that were interesting. He, he was the first to use an exergenie <laughs> in a dojo. So he did a lot of innovative things and he did look at cross training. We started to learn, you know, oh, we're going to do stretching with ballet. We're going to do, you know, weight training this way. And all of it was toward this idea of functionality toward judo. So we're stretching and doing ballet because it improves our jumata or, or helps our, our technique this way. Do you think that's part of also why you've been able to train and compete for so long is that kind of foundation? That and, and the idea that he, he really focused on technique. Um, when I went to Japan and trained in other places around the country, both New York, I, I was at the New York Athletic Club for a while. Um, you know, the idea of, of being soft in your, in your hands and, you know, being 
light was foreign to people. You know, you got a grip and you crunch down on people. And, and in Carl's uh, judo, you, you put hands on people and they didn't feel you. you. You didn't know that they were there. And then when you came in for a throw, they were exploding into this throw that came out of nowhere. And it was extremely effective. But competitively, when you had somebody who was not working on that level, um, then it, you know, it kind of morphed. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Um, but he, I think that was part of it because you didn't quite have the, the body under tension as much. That makes sense. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening, you can't see this, but Brian is actually closing and opening his hands while he's talking, <laughs> which is somebody who's done judo for a long time. They can't do that anymore. Their hands become claws, but now it makes sense why he has still fingers and he can move them because uh, what he was talking about with that soft grip. Yeah. Because a lot of judokas, they just grab you and they just grip really tight. And then you look at them, they can't even write with a pencil anymore because their hands are so deformed. Yeah. And you, you do have to, I mean, the gripping is, you know, you mentioned it earlier, gripping in judo and jiu-jitsu is crucial. Yes. And, you know, on an international level, it's 50% of the, of the game. If I don't, if I don't get my grip, if I don't have the advantage grip, I'm, I'm, you know, I've lost more than half the battle. So the gripping you have to be able to not only get a grip, but you have to hold a grip and you're having to hold a grip against somebody who does not want you to have that grip. So they're going to tear that out. But it was still about, even with the grip being, you know, on and firm, it was the idea that the, the hands and the arms weren't tight. I wasn't trying to muscle, uh, into a move. I was, I was being light so that you didn't, because otherwise you telegraph your movements. And that's one of the biggest issues that young first, you know, people starting out both in jujitsu and judo is they're telegraphing. They're, they're, they're using all their strength to try and muscle a move. And it's, it tells somebody whose uh, competitor has been around for a while. Okay. They're doing this now. Okay. I'm going to move this way. And it allows you to escape. Now, when you went to Japan, what was training like there as far as intensity and frequency? Were you training like every day? Or? Um, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes three times a day, sometime. And every day, every day. Uh, at least six days a week. So I went to Japan. I, I went to uh, uh, Sophia University, Jyoti Daigaku, uh, and was going to school briefly. I ended up uh, leaving school and staying just to train. But um, I would train with uh, a university team because, the, again, the judo, judo in Japan, there are three places where it's mainly uh, focused. It's, it's in school. It's in the police, and then they have the Kodokan, which is the centralized dojo. And the the teams, the the really great judo comes out of the high school and the police team, uh, college and police team. So I went to Waseda University. Waseda was known um, mainly for being technical excellence in judo and uh, really bright competitors. It was kind of like our Harvard or, or Princeton. So Brian was talking about technique and about injury, right? And the thing about martial arts is technique is not just important about just for the sake of being technical, but it, when you apply the technique better, it's also a safer technique for both of you. So that's the other important part. Being technical or being technique focused doesn't mean that you just have a higher percentage. It's a higher percentage plus less likely both of you get injured. And I think that's a point that people miss because sometimes they're just like, 
well, if I could just make it work, I don't have to be as technical. Yeah, but now it's more dangerous for both of you. So for self-preservation, it still makes sense to be technical. Yeah, probably, you know, more injuries happen with white belts competing against, you know, or working out with people because they don't have the technique and, you know, they're trying things that are dangerous for them and for you. So I'm more terrified of white belts than I am of black belts. And they don't realize that I'm the one scared of them. They think (laughs) they should be afraid of me. And it's like, dude, I will not hurt you. I guarantee it, (laughs) but you might hurt me and you can't guarantee shit. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I, in Japan, there was, uh, I would work out at the Kodokan in the afternoons. I would work out with the uh, college teams and then I would go and I would do weights or I would do cross training. And, and they also, uh, one week out of every month, the university had what's called Goshku training where you would train three times a day with their team. So in the morning from six to eight, and then you'd take a break and then you'd work out, um, do like cross training from noon to two. And then again, from four to six. And then after that, I would take a break and I would go to the Kodokan from like seven to nine. And then I would go to sleep and do the whole thing over again. So it was, uh, it was brutal training and it was, um, the, the depth of the, and the quality of the competitors there is uh, unparalleled in any other place. It would be like being a football player here in the 1950s, you know, on a college team, there's just competition. That's what everybody did, you know, and that's in Japan, everybody did judo. And now going back to something you mentioned earlier. So you started martial arts at six because your brother got into it and you got into it. How'd you get into acting then? Uh, Okay. Not real sure exactly, but somewhere along the line, I wanted to be an actor. Uh, And about nine years old, I, I told my mother and father, Hey, this is what I want to do. And I started taking classes in like the local theater in Houston and um, then got cast in a play, you know, and it was actually paid to, to do it. I thought, well, this is, this is the life. This is what I want to do. And just fell in love with it, fell in love with acting. Did you ever feel asymmetry of doing something very, let's say masculine, right? Like tough guy, judo, martial arts, I'm getting sweaty. And then I'm doing something, you know, the fine arts, you know, the humanities, or it never felt incongruent to you. Not never incongruent to me. Uh, you know, uh, the, hmm, how do I put this? So, you know, in, in my youth looking, looking to, uh, uh, meet the ladies, you know, Acting was a great way to do it. Um, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the martial arts, you know, and so they, that wasn't a problem. That wasn't an issue for me. For me, it was just, you know, something that I, I enjoyed doing and I excelled at. And, you know, one of the things, and this is true about martial arts as well, you know, one of the things and one of the reasons I still enjoy getting on the mat is this idea and this concept of mastery. And I'm still learning every day as a, as an actor, as a writer, as a teacher, as a, as a martial artist. I'm still learning. I'm not, I'm not at perfection. I'm never going to be at perfection, but at mastery, I'm close. So when I get on the mat, I know that I'm in control of, of my movements. I know that I'm in control of how I'm going to step into a move or, or what I'm going to attempt to do when somebody takes a step. You know, I may not always succeed, but I, I'm comfortable there. And that feeling of mastery uh, is great for one's self-confidence, um, for one's ego. And it's, you know, there's not many things that in life we as human beings have control over. And this is a term that a lot of martial artists who've been doing it a long time talk about. 
mastery because when you're a beginner, you think about perfection. And there's a difference between mastery and perfection. Huge. You're just trying to master the art, but you're not trying to be perfect at the art because you'll never be perfect at the art, right? So it's a kind of a, a paradigm shift that you have to make if you want to stick with a martial art and never quit. But also if you want to keep enjoying it and growing and also like not get injured, you're not getting OCD about it, not overtraining also. That's, that's a big thing too. So how did you get the writing bug from acting? Well, uh, that was actually more out of necessity than anything else. Um, my father's a writer, uh, not a screenwriter, but a writer has written 60 or 70 books. Uh, God bless him, still around, still writing. His name is Mickey Herskowitz, and he, he wrote with people like Betty Davis and Gene Tierney and uh, Nolan Ryan and uh, Mickey Mantle and you know books with them. Is it biographies then that he biographies writes? and he's he's but he is a co-biographer, so his name is on the book. You know, politicians to to actors to to sports people, and he was a sports writer. Um, in fact, you know, in my youth, I you know I got to meet Muhammad Ali because of my father and you know talking about boxing, but. Um, so I had that genetic predisposition to write. And when I was injured at the, in 1980 um, and was in a, a, a non-weight-bearing cast for nine months, couldn't do a whole lot of auditioning for parts. And I was stuck. Couldn't do judo. Um, couldn't do, you know, couldn't really go out on any acting jobs unless they were looking for a one-legged guy. So I was stuck and I wasn't doing anything else. And I sat around and I started coming up with an idea. And my first... You know, as often is the case, the first idea that came to me was about my life in Japan and uh, and martial arts. So I, I wrote a, a script that was kind of a thriller about a young kid going to Japan to train in martial arts who gets involved with the Japanese mafia. And it wasn't a very good script, probably, you know, in hindsight, but it was good enough to where people took notice. And I got some accolades for it. I got an agent out of it. I, it was optioned a couple of different times. It was never made. But, you know, it was good enough to where, you know, some people said, hey, you, sh you should think about doing this. And I, I put that aside for a while. I tried to write a second script and had no clue how to do it and got about 70 pages in and went, uh, now what? So... I determined that if I was interested in becoming a writer, that I had to figure out how you did it. And I started studying and I started reading every book that I could read on the subject from Sid Field or Robert McKee. I took classes with a guy named Don Truby. I took classes at Sherwood Oaks uh, Community uh, uh, Experimental College. I, um, and I really became a student of the form. And after that, um, I was working on a television series as a producer called Tour of Duty about the Vietnam War. And they came to me and they said, we know you, you're interested in writing. Would you rather write or produce? And I said, I'd rather write. And they said, well, too bad. We need you to produce. And I said, okay, but we'll give you a script. So I wrote a script for the show and it was uh, it did very well. I got a lot of accolades. It, it was a uh, at the time, people still remember TV Guide. I know it's still around, but not as ubiquitous as it used to be. Um, TV Guide made it the pick of the week. So it, it, it did very well. And because of that, I got an agent and that really started my career. So I continued to study, continued to work. And then as I was studying, I started to see this kind of gap in the, in the system of how do you put together a screenplay? What makes a screenplay work? Why, 
why it does and why it doesn't work from the writer's perspective. And again, there was this idea of either it was extremely um, technical and kind of, I thought, uh, restrictive in that you do this on page one, seven, nine, ten, you know, or it was the hero's journey and it gave you so much room that you didn't really know how to do it. So I wanted something that allowed you to kind of have the best of both worlds. And that was where I started to develop my teaching. And I started teaching. Uh, I also wrote for a show called Blossom, which was a uh, sitcom on on CBS. And after that, I was sitting around going, well, I don't need, where's my next job coming from? And I ended up um, taking another class at a place called Writer's Boot Camp. And I loved the concept of how they put stuff together, but didn't think the teacher was very good. No offense to the teacher, but I went to the owner and I said, look, I'm a professional writer. I've worked on sitcoms. If you want somebody who knows how to do this, to teach this, I think I'd be very, very good at it and be interested. So I taught there for six years, then went off to UCLA Extensions for about a a decade. And then the last uh, 14 years at Boston University here in Los Angeles, they have an internship program that I teach. And that's how the, that, that was kind of my journey as a writer. Now, going back to your journey as a martial artist, you started with judo. You did it nonstop for a long time. You were also acting. You were doing a lot of craft. You were always developing something, it sounds like. And even like becoming a student of the game of writing. It seems like you're a very systematic thinker and you have a, a systematic approach to things. Did you do any other martial arts besides judo and BJJ? Did you ever do the karate? Did you ever do the taekwondo, anything else? Because a lot of times you, you talk to somebody who started in the 60s and you find out they've done like eight different martial arts. It's rare that they only stuck to grappling, but you're a weirdo in a lot of ways. Yeah, so. I am. I'm, 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 a, I'm an anomaly. So the first thing I, I under Carl guys, I study Aikido a little bit. Um, but again, you know, think about, if you think about uh, martial arts and you think about uh, specialization, right? And if you put a boxer in the ring, as we've recently seen with an MMA guy, the boxer's generally going to win, right? You put that same boxer in an MMA ring, the MMA guy's going to win, you know, same thing. So I was specializing in judo because that's really what I wanted to do. So I didn't stay with Aikido very long and I didn't really do any other martial arts until my daughter who at 12 um, started taking uh, Sorenji Kenpo, karate. And she got her black belt at 12. And I went, well, no, 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 no. You're not getting a black belt <laughs> in a martial art unless I'm a black belt in martial arts. So <laughs> I, I went and started doing Sorenji Kenpo and uh, did Sorenji Kenpo for a couple of years, got my black belt. And I went, okay, I'm good. Um, I, I liked it. It was fun. I didn't find it particularly practical. For me, it was more choreography than it was martial art. But also being a grappler, what was it like to be striking? Did it feel unusual or because of the fluidity of judo and all the type of movements you had to do, it wasn't that much of a crossover? Like, cause just visually, right? We would think they're very different. There isn't a lot of crossover, but you being a martial athlete, what did you notice when you did that? Well, there, there are some parallels and, and I think that judo without any question gave me a leg up in terms of, of doing karate, the striking, you know, it took me a while to kind of catch on, but I, I absolutely, you know, I, I adapted faster than your average Joe would have. But again, for me, where it was different is, you know, 80% of what we were doing had no, 
it wasn't contextual. I didn't, you know, in judo, I got hands on. In jujitsu, I've got the guy there. When I move to the right and he moves to the left, I know exactly what's happening. When I'm striking and I'm doing my katas in karate, there's nobody there. You know, I, I, I'm shooting at air and I'm going, where, where am I hitting this guy and how am I hitting him? And it's what more is abstract. this Yeah. So for me, like I said, it felt more like choreography. And it didn't then, when we would spar, what I was learning in my katas, which were the, you know, in this particular dojo, the foundation for moving up in rank, it didn't really, you know, it didn't really translate as well as one would think in terms of, okay, now somebody's trying to hit me. How do I block? Where do I strike? What happens if, you know, I kick here? You know, those things didn't quite, did, you know, I wasn't doing enough sparring and, and competition or anything for it to really become practical uh, in terms of the application. So I, I after I got my black belt, I, I was, I was uh, disheartened by the actual uh, promotional process and found it a little overly humiliating. <laughs> and I went, that's enough, I'm done. And also training in a different kind of martial art like this, which is more, sounds like a legacy kind of martial art where they're doing a lot of things that might not be practical anymore. And it's like you said, it's more choreography based. Was it also hard to get like the same fitness level that you did in judo? Oh yeah, no, there, there, there's, there's no comparison. Um, you know, it, when, I, when I do an hour of judo, I walk off the mat and it looks like I took a shower. When I do an hour of karate, you know, I sweat, but it's not that kind of, you know, exertion just isn't. And again, it comes back to the idea of, you know, judo and jiu-jitsu, not only is it aerobic, but it's aerobic and anaerobic. So you're constantly, you know, working the muscle groups and you're constantly stressing your heart and you don't have that, you know, you get some of that in karate, but not much. So we talked about sports medicine and different kind of self-care stuff, right? But as far as your training, your training philosophy and methodology, what do you use? What is your philosophy to train and not be injured all the time? One of the reasons I'm asking you is because I kind of want to take credit for you competing in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because I ran into you at a health club and you were doing cardio. And I was asking, what the hell are you doing cardio here for? You just get on the mat and you just train. But that's part of why I got injured so much because I didn't do any cross training. Every one of my training sessions was just man on man. I was training like twice a day. Sometimes I think that was part of it. Like maybe I shouldn't only do the sport to get good at the sport. And you were already kind of on that track. Yeah. So I was like, I saw you doing cardio and I was like, what? And then I told you about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So what is your philosophy? Share it with me. Like I want to get back to competing again because I just had a kid and, and I'm so far away from fight shape, but looking at you and talking to you, I have hope again. <laughs> well, good. So, I, you know, philosophically, I have kind of, uh, I'm of two minds. And again, a lot of it has to do with how motivated I am. And that has to do with competition, you know, what's coming up, what do I want to get in shape for? I always try to stay in shape. So I'm, I get into the gym, you know, uh, and I'm talking about not a, a dojo, but a gym three days a week and I do cardio and I, I do weights. Focusing on balance, like you talked about. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. And it, usually a little more, I tend to do a little bit more cardio than I do weights um, because a lot of, like I said, a lot of the judo and jujitsu is anaerobic. So, you know, I don't feel like I need that as much, but I also think it's very important to keep the conditioning up. When I'm in training for competition, that changes and the focus changes a little bit. And I tend to do um, more specific weight training. So I do, um, I do things that are a little bit more whole body exercises. 
I'll do cleans um, where with a jump. So it helps with the explosiveness of the martial art. You're not doing that year round, though. Only no, when no, competition only is coming because it's too hard. It's too 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 intense, um, and you'll get injured. You know if you do it to us. So I try to you know, but I I try to stay in enough shape where I can enter into these kind of intense periods of training without risking injury. Um, you know, if I'm not in pretty good shape when I go into that, then I'm I'm really likely to get hurt. So don't use that to get in shape. Yeah, don't use that to get in shape. Another secret is staying in shape consistently. Yeah, you, you you know I don't I never let myself get way out of shape. I, I'm I, you know do I get soft in the middle? Yeah. Do I put on a few extra pounds? Sure. You know I do that, and then I have to kind of work it off to to get in shape for competition. The other thing is I do uh, I, I do uh, a high interval high high intensity interval training or uh, Tabata. Um, and so I'll do, it's a, a kind of my own concept of that, but usually it's on an elliptical. So I'm working whole body again and I'll do, you know, a 20 second sprint, 10 second rest, 20 second sprint. And sometimes I'll mix that up, um, where I'll do a, you know, 30 second sprint, 30 second rest, 30 second sprint, 30 second rest. But I, I, you know, really pushing that as well. That's only during competition time. I, that I do. There are two two things. I increase the the frequency of that during competition time, but I do it um, sometimes depending on how much time I have at the gym. So if I, you know, if I go to the gym and I've got to read a script, I'll take a script and I'll read. I'll sit on the on the elliptical and I'll read for forty five minutes. But if I only have fifteen minutes or twenty minutes, I'll I'll go and I'll do uh, a you know a fifteen minute tabata, do some weights and and get out. Um, I also tend to not do a whole lot of weight exercises when I'm not training for um, a competition, but I'll always do, if I'm going to do a pull exercise, I can do a push exercise. So I, I always keep in balance. So another thing then sounds like even if you're limited in time, instead of just saying, I only have 15 minutes, I'm not going to go to the gym, you'll still go and do something. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if, how much, uh, you know, your, your listeners know about the Tabata training, but basically, you know, uh, again, a Japanese uh, educator took a, a, a t bunch of college students, 200 college students, broke them into two teams and said, okay, you guys do traditional uh, aerobics, 45 minutes. And you guys do 20 second sprint, 10 second rest, 20 second sprint. And they did a, a three minute warm up, and then four minutes of this intense um, interval training where they, they'd go as hard as they could for 20 seconds, rest for 10 seconds, go for 20 seconds. They do that for four minutes and a one minute warm down. And then it, they did um, uh, what kind of increase or decrease in their, their physical conditioning. And the guys who had done that little eight minute program were showing an incredible increase versus the control group that was doing 45 minutes of aerobics. And the, the downside is I'm getting to an age where um, you have to be a little bit careful in that you don't want to try that kind of thing without going to a doctor and making sure that you're in condition and your health is good because you can, you know, you're putting a lot of stress on your heart and, you know, you get up around 50, 60, you got to be, you got to be smart about it. Um, you know, if you find that you do that and you're starting to have chest pains, don't do it um, and see a doctor before you try something like that. There's, there's a difference between training for a specific martial art or event, and there's conditioning. And they're two different things. You know, the fact that I can run a marathon doesn't help me on the mat. 
Um, what I need to be able to do is I need to be able to exert for four minutes, which is the length of a judo match, you know, balls to the wall, full on out. So in a lot of ways, the Tabata type training where I'm doing four minutes of this kind of incredible intense conditioning is more uh, apropos to com competition than going out and doing my normal 45 minute conditioning, which I do also. But, you know, I want to be able to have that time where I'm I'm putting the greatest amount of stress on myself in that four minute time period. So I do that three days a week. So you're simulating. Yeah. And, and I, and I don't do that. Uh, like I said, I don't do that every, you know, all the time. It's, it's when I'm really in training that I start because the intensity of it is, is it's difficult to maintain. And I don't want to get up to a place where I go, this is so hard. I don't want to do it at all. So I, I have to, I, I'm a big believer in all things in moderation, but I do believe that you have to keep in shape. You got to keep training. And I think as you get older, in some ways, weight training becomes more important. Why do you think that? Well, because I think it's harder for you to maintain muscle mass and muscle tone. And if you're not, um, if you're not putting stress on the muscles by weight training, um, you can be in great cardiovascular strength, but you're, you, you know, uh, condition, but you're not going to have strength on the mat and you're not going to be able to compete. That's true because there's young guys never even touch the weight and they're just kind of buff. Yeah. But you'll never meet an old guy <laughs> who remains buff, yeah. who's never touched the weight. So it, that kind of disappears eventually. Yeah, it does. You, you know, you get what we, we used to jokingly call it, uh, TBA, total body atrophy. <laughs> what are your thoughts on full-time training, training in the dojo, your sport twice a day, three times a day, seven days a week? You know, there's, you know, a lot of it depends on how are you training in the dojo seven days a week? You know, there, there is, there are pluses and minuses to both, but one of the things about, you know, you have to, at some point you have to allow your body to recover. And if you're, if you're training hard seven days a week or twice a day for seven days a week, when, when do you recover? When does your body, when, when do the muscle tears that you've had and you, you're, you're tearing muscle every time you do any kind of you know, martial arts or, or weight workout, there's micro tears in the fibers of the muscle. So you need 24 hours, you know, 48 hours for those to repair and, you know, and strengthen. And if you don't allow that, the muscles don't, you don't get the kind of uh, return on investment that you want in your conditioning. So technically you can work technically seven days a week. I don't, I don't think there's a huge problem with that. Although I think even that, you know, you mentally need a break. So I think that there's, you could do that on a short, you know, short run, like I, like I did in Japan where, you know, once a month I do that for a week, but again, appropriate for those guys who are at a world-class level, they're, they're in that kind of intense youth, you know, uh, target area. But I, I also think that that could be penny wise and pound foolish. And, you know, it's like, you know, I remember, you know, the, the philosophy when I was a kid of playing through pain, you know, you would be a, a, a football player or basketball player and you'd sprain an ankle and say, ah, you know, walk it off kid, you know, get back in there, or, you know, football players that are getting knocked out and, you know, Hey, it's okay. You're fine. Get back in. And, and that's all well and good for that day. But there are consequences to those actions. And, you know, you talk about the competitors who, you know, or in wheelchairs day, Wilhelm Ruska was a, an Olympic gold medalist who, you know, died in a wheelchair. You know, he's not, these are people that are not, you know, 
They, the last part of their lives were not pleasant for them. So, you know, there's a point at which you want to say, "Am I am I taking care of myself? Am I taking care of my emotional, physical needs? And am I allowing myself the time that I need to relax, to rest?" And what's your ideal split when you're training? You mentioned earlier you go to the gym three times a week. So, how many times a week do you want to hit the dojo? Then, well, I I try to hit the the dojo two to three times a week.、Um, When I'm in training, again, you know, I may increase that. And what I may do is, like, if I'm competing in a, a, a judo competition, I may do, you know, judo three days a week, and and then maybe do jujitsu one day a week. So I maybe do four or five days a week. Wait, so you're currently training judo and jujitsu? Yeah, I do both now. You're crazy. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> or you're Wolverine. You just have like healing factor.、Yeah. <laughs> You know, I find them very complimentary, and you know, I can, you know, I always feel beat up after a judo workout,、um, but that doesn't stop me from being able to go to a jujitsu workout, and I can get on the mat, work on my newaza or my grappling, my submission techniques, and all goes towards conditioning, all goes toward technique, and all goes towards you know、uh, having success on the mat. Now, when you were younger, did you have some kind of paranoia that you didn't do enough? Because I find for myself that's a lot of the reason why I got injured because I was doing too much because I was always paranoid that I wasn't in the dojo enough. And then it's like I'm in there too much. You know, I I never felt like I wasn't doing enough.、Um, I didn't have that paranoia, but I always pushed myself almost from the opposite direction. I always wanted to be to to say that I was doing more than my competitor. So. You know, if they were going to run a mile, I wanted to run two. If they were going to the dojo, you know, four hours, I want to be there six hours. You know, I always wanted to do more, and I, you know, that there are, you know, I, I in Japan, I separated my shoulder, I sprained my ankle, I worked through it, I never stopped,、um, and I, I still have problems with that shoulder and that ankle today, you know, for that reason. So there's again, there's a little bit of the idea of well, there's there is the Foolishness and the hardiness of youth, and the resilience of youth, and then there's the consequences of the actions that you take at that time. They ripple through your entire life that you want to kind of mitigate and take care of yourself. So when you do go to judo or you're going to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, do you spar every time you go, or is that dependent on if you have a competition or not? I, I spar to Rondori every time,、uh, but not as much. And I also pick my my partners carefully, so、um, I tend to pick on you know women and children first, <laughs> and then work my way up.、Um, I'm I'm more willing to work out in、uh, in newaza on、uh, groundwork with bigger and old, stronger and younger opponents than I am you know when I'm standing in judo.、Um, my favorite.、Uh, Training partner right now is a, a young woman who was on the Mongolian national judo team, and she's just tough as nails. She's all I can handle, you know. She, and she probably weighs about a hundred hundred pounds. She's you know, a little thing, so but she's perfect for me, you know. And I, I, the thing I get to focus on is technical, you know. Am I am I doing technique properly? Am I? But the thing where she is far superior to me now is gripping. Grip, grip is one of the things that goes with age. One of the things that people don't think about enough, and when people ask me about good training and being able to train year round without getting injured, I tell them is picking the right partners, and nobody thinks about that. But I learned that the hard way, and that pays more dividends than almost anything else is the right training partners. Absolutely, 
you know, the instructor, I feel like they're obligated to tell you, just train with everybody, spar with everybody. And it's like, dude, that's bullshit, man. Yeah. You cannot train year round if you spar with everybody. There's some people I have to avoid. I cannot keep training if I spar with so-and-so. So I pick my partners wisely. So how important is that for your training and longevity? Hugely. When I was young, it, it didn't matter. You know, I would compete with anybody. And it, it cost me. In 1979, I was um, uh, one of the competitors who was uh, going to the world uh, trials, championship trials. And it was the first sports festival in Colorado Springs. And I was at a training camp that was just brutal. And uh, it was run by Hayward Nishioka, who is a Hall of Fame judoka, uh, Nantan. And Hayward, Hayward was my coach for many years. But it was a, he. They ran a camp in in a Big Bear in high altitude. And it was just absolutely brutal. Uh, and, and again, that was the thing where you're training three days a week plus running, you know. And but I mean, we had an ambulance there every night because somebody <laughs> was getting injured or you know thrown through a window or you know all kinds of crap. And they decided to have a, a competition the last day of camp. And this is a week before I go to compete for the world championship. You know, try and make the world championship team. And they put me in a lineup next to a kid, and I was, I was probably seventy nine. I was twenty three, I guess twenty twenty one. I was twenty one years old, and they put me next to this kid who is sixteen years old, and I weighed one hundred and twenty nine, and this kid weighed two sixty five, and he was the national champion in the juniors, uh, three years running. His, his name was also Brian. I can't remember his last name, but. Um, you know, I, I thought, oh, he's bigger than me. That's okay. I'll, I'll compete with him. And I, I beat him, but at a huge cost because I came in for a throw and he dropped and his knee came onto my foot and broke my foot. And now I've got a week before the world trials. Um, and I can't walk. And I, I went to, um, a, a chiropractor named Leroy Perry, who is known as the good hands doctor. He's an uh, Olympic chiropractor. And he you know, gave me all kinds of you know stuff. Didn't didn't help. I got to the Olympic, uh, uh, the sports festival, the Olympic festival, and saw a doctor there. And they gave me a cortisone injection so I could walk, but I couldn't move. I couldn't turn. And I competed in the world trials. And I um, I beat the guy who was the uh, Olympic team member in 1976, a guy named Joe Boast, but and ended up taking third. But I lost to uh, one of the greatest judokas of all time, a guy named Keith Nakasone, and ended up not not winning. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't walk. So that's you know that's a kind of an indication. If it, there was a part of me that went, you know, do I want to compete against this guy that's literally twice my size? And you know, yeah, I beat him, but there was a cost. To it. And now at the time, that didn't matter to me. You know, I I would. It didn't matter if a guy was six eight and two two ninety, or if he was, you know, I, I was going to go against anybody, and I was going to try and rip their heads off. And you know, now I'm a kinder, gentler judoka and jujitsu practitioner. Where you know, not only am I careful about who I'm going with, but I'm I watch people, and if they're reckless and careless in the way that they they go about it, I don't want I don't want to get on the mat with them. And I'll turn people down and say, look, you know, no, you're just too big for me, or you know. Um, no thanks. <laughs> That's one of the hardest part is having the confidence in yourself to say no to people and not feel like they were tougher than you or you're not 
man enough or whatever. And then you just got to get over that eventually if you want to preserve your body. But I also at this point, you know, I'm 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 one of the senseis in the dojo and, you know, I get to I, I at my age I get to I get to pick and choose. <laughs> and I also at a certain point the one thing that, you know, I I don't do anymore is I don't push myself beyond what I feel are my limits. So when I've had a good workout and I get to a place where I go you know, I'm at that point where I'm getting tired enough to where I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to get injured. I I go up and I say, well, I'm in one piece. Everything's together. Nothing's broken. I'm leaving. And then I go. And if I get injured before, you know, if I got injured, I would, you know, work through it and fight through it and keep going. And now if I get injured, I go, okay, I'm taking off a week. And I take care of the injuries and I make sure that, you know, I'm ready to get back on the mat before I, I, I get back on the mat. I, I, I hurt my knee, just tweaked a little bit a couple of weeks ago. And I went, you know, I could probably go back to judo tonight. And, but my knee's a little, a little wonky. And I waited and I waited about two weeks, went back. When I went back, felt fine, all good, you know, but it's, it's kind of knowing yourself and knowing your body and knowing your limits. And that is hard. That's very hard. And it took me a long time to get to the place where I went, Okay, I'm not the toughest, you know, guy on the block. I'm not the I'm not the baddest dog in in the yard. And it's okay. That's the really important one is being able to say no and also being able to say you're done for the day. Yeah. Which is also kind of like a saying no to yourself because maybe you feel like, no, I got a little bit more in me, but you're like, no, I should just stop. Then you just grab your bags and you leave. I've gotten injured where I've told myself no. So I started saying no to my training partners. But I still sat there instead of leaving. Right. And then somebody talked me into rolling. Right. Then I got hurt and I realized I just got to leave. Yeah. Well, my thing, you know, one of the things that happens with me now that, that didn't used to happen is if I'm working out and I've rolled a couple of times and then I take a break and I start to cool off, I'm done. Because I don't, I don't then want to have to kind of get back into that, that rhythm. And because I, I just know that that's when I'm going to get hurt. So I always say, no, nah, that's it. One of the ways I know you is we were training at the same judo school together. We were training at the world famous, really, judo Jean LaBelle and Gokor school. It's a grappling school and judo school. And I like to say that I did my tour of duty there. You know, I was there for a while. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's the same thing about picking your partners. Tough as nails, guys. Super good. Some guys really technical. But I got hurt a lot there. It's just a tough, tough school. And it's almost like, it was like a time for you to test your metal, right? And yeah. then and then I was like, okay, I've proven enough to myself. That's how I met you is there were some training partners I felt safe with. And right. also if they said yes to me, then I must have been also training in a style where they felt safe, right? Sure. And that's one of the things that if you're training martial arts, if one of the higher ups or one of the senseis says they'll train with you or spar with you, that's a big compliment. They are saying they feel safe with you, right? It's a reminder that not only so much of it is about toughness or good training partners as far as tough, hard training partners and good instruction, that's not enough. You need enough safe training partners so you could keep going at it and keep training continuously. So sometimes that means that maybe you love everything about the school. I have nothing bad to say, but you got to find a school where you also feel like I could do this year round. If it's a gym where they only allow me to do Olympic lifts, we're only doing cleans. There's times where I need to do that, but I can't do that year round. I need a gym that I could join where I could train year round. I was on the team at Los Angeles City College and a lot of the guys made the Olympic teams, were national champions, 
But where I trained was at Tenry, which is downtown Los Angeles. Tenry is one of the toughest um, judo dojos in the country. And many, many national champions and, and team competitors from, from that dojo. And it was tough. And it's to this day very tough. When I started uh, you know, coming back and training again, I went back to Tenry for a while, but it was so tough. I, I trained at Gokors and Gokors is very tough. And I, you know, I hung in there, no problem. You know, those, those are guys that I trained with. I had no problem training with them, but they were, you know, they were not taking it lightly. This was not about, let's just play. It was, it was competition for them. And it was same with, with Tenry. And if that's your goal, if that's what you're there about and you're, you're, you know, that's what you're interested in. Fantastic. And there came a time where I could have gone back to Tenry and there was another dojo um, called the Hollywood Judo Dojo, which has been around for 60 years. And I'd heard about it forever. It was really close to Los Angeles City College and I'd just never been. And I went, you know, that's right around the corner for me. I'm going to check that out. I checked it out and it was very, you know, good workouts, very strong, but it wasn't about, you know, try and rip that person's head off. See if you can hurt that person. See if you can, you know, do damage. It was about technique and it was about more Japanese style judo. And I like that. It's uh, it's for me, that's the, the pace that I need right now. I even thought about, I was, when I was training for the, the nationals here, I thought I should go down to Tenry and, you know, work out at Tenry. And I went, I'm too old to train at Tenry. Now. I think I'm done with that. <laughs> you did it. Yeah. I've, I've been there, done that, you know, and there's just a certain point where you go, yeah, I could go there, but you know, nobody there is going to look at me and go, okay, the guy's 60 years old. He's probably not here trying to rip my head off. Let me just, you know, work with him technically. I think they're going to try and kill me. <laughs> and it's like, I don't need that in my life. So you you do want to pick and and by the way as a competitor that was my dojo yes. and and i would encourage people if that's what they want look, you seek out that kind of dojo but again it goes back to this idea of what is success to you if success is i want to go and get in shape i want to do this 3 days a week or i want to get my my blue belt or i want you know whatever it is that is your personal goal find the dojo that matches your your style your speed your philosophy so on top of picking the right training partners and knowing when to stop for the day, did you have to change your style over the years so you could train year round and not hurt yourself? Like, did you have to change your intensity, make it more play-based? Yes. A hundred percent. The, the idea of changing from, um, you know, competition mode to, you know, now I just want to play. But my, my technical style hasn't changed much, but I, you know, for example, you know, when I was a kid, if somebody got a submission hold on me and they had me in an arm bar and a choke, you know, you had to get a crowbar for, you know, get me off the guy before I would submit, you know, when I wasn't going to tap, you know, I was going to fight that until either my arm was popping or my eyes were bulging out of my head or, you know, I wasn't going to give up. And that's changed. Uh, you know, I get to a place where, you know, guys get me and like, okay, particularly with leg bars. I'm, I, you know, judo, we don't do leg bars and jujitsu we do. And if I get a jujitsu guy who gets me in a leg bar, man, I'm the fastest tapper in the world, you know, cause I, I've got bad knees and I'm not interested, you know? And so I very quickly, I, I very quickly learned to, to give that up. And, you know, I, I, when I was a competitor, you know, that was not the case. Uh, I was going to fight through anything and I would, I would go, you know, I would take on anybody and I would fight 
as hard as I could with anyone. And now, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I try to match the intensity of the person that I'm working out with. And I try and be as, as fluid and as relaxed as possible, because that's, that's where, again, the people that really kind of muscle through their techniques, they're the people that get and get injured and injure you. I think humility in sparring is really important. There does come a point. Okay. Now I need to change how I roll. Like, you know, if this guy, you know, submits me or this person takes me down or sweeps me, it's like, it is what it is. My focus now, how I define my success is just being on the mat yeah, and not being hurt where I have to leave the mat because I could probably fight them hard. And then if they get me, I get one back, but then that might be it. I just get one roll in and I'm done. Yeah. Well, you know, and once in a while, you know, you, you, I still push the envelope a little bit and then kind of think, ooh, maybe, maybe that was too much, you know, like, you know, I, I, there's a guy at the dojo who, you know, younger, tough, good competitor, very good jujitsu, a judo guy, very good jujitsu. And, uh, I had him uh, on the mat and I was trying to choke and I was, I have a technique that I do where I kind of follow the ear line. Oh, I know this choke. Cause you choked me with it in a position that I didn't think. Yeah, you couldn't do it. Even in judo, everything is about positional superiority. And I thought that worked a hundred percent of the time. So even if somebody's trying to do a submission on you, if they don't have the superior position, it is impossible. Now I realize that's 99% of the yeah, time. Not true. always true. Fundamentally, that's how I would teach it. Just believe that that's true all the time. But you show me from a position where I had a dominant position and then I'm like, I'm tapping, I'm going out. So I know exactly what choke you're talking yeah. about. So, but he, he, it's not the most pleasant feeling as you're kind of digging under the chin to bring your hand under the neck. And uh, he got very upset with me and I went, okay, that probably was, you know, probably too far, you know? So you have to kind of mitigate that, but you're, you know, you're right about that. And they're, they're like, for instance, you're not supposed to be able to choke someone from the guard. You know, if I'm in your guard, I, I shouldn't be able to choke you. That that's one of my favorite positions to choke someone. I think I had you mounted. I've done that too. But uh, in fact, at the world, at the uh, Pan American Jiu Jitsu Championships, the, there was one, the guy who was six, five was beating me up pretty bad. You know, he, I, and not, not, not doing anything. I was just kind of turtled up, but he had points and I was like, he's like, I'm 12 points down or something ridiculous. And, but he made a mistake. He, he took my back and I peeled his arm off, turned into him. So I was in his guard okay. and he thought, okay, I'm perfectly safe. And I got an Ezekiel. Um, You're grabbing your own sleeve for people who don't know. And he turned me over. So he was now mounted and then he went to sleep. And when he woke up, um, they were raising my hand and he was not a happy camper. And he was like, I didn't go out, but he got out. He was asleep. He, his, his own son said to him, you put your head on his shoulder like a baby. You were asleep. It's like, yeah, that's a sneaky one. And that's the thing though, going back to what we were talking about with screenwriting or whatever, you need to learn the fundamentals, but then you also need room to play. And if you were never given room to play, you would have never been able yeah, to develop that told, move. You can't do that from the guard. You can't do that from this position. And I'd go, oh, okay, well, I guess I can't do it. But, but the fact is you see an opening, you see that there's a possibility and yes, there are risks to doing that kind of thing. I mean, there, there are tons of things that can go wrong, but if you get it, you get it. But you know, I, I'm of the philosophy now that, you know, old age and treachery beat youth and stamina. So I'm surprised they haven't banned that move yet. <laughs> the way martial arts is, is if somebody's doing something that shouldn't work, they're like, okay, that's illegal. Yeah. You can't do it from there. <laughs> that's next. 
the thing about it is, you know, and, and you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, you know, at this point in my life, I, I'm here for fun, you know, and I get on the mat and if I'm not enjoying, even if I'm going intensely, if I'm not enjoying the, you know, the play, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing there. You know, if, if I find myself having to, you know, that, that somebody is really coming after me, uh, you know, I'll defend myself uh, to the fullest of my ability, but I always want to do it with a, a sense of humor and, and a kind of an understanding of where I am in the world and not about, I'm trying to kill this person. I'm trying to, you know, inflict harm and, and, you know, if they step over the line and I'm in a position to kind of, you know, knock them upside the head and say, Hey, knock it off. I'll do that too. But that's, you know, I, I'm, I am also, I've been doing this a long time and I also want to impart some wisdom philosophically and technically to people. So I want to say to them, oh, that was really good. But if you do this, you know, you would have had more success getting me here. Or if you had blocked that, you would have been able to do this. So I want to, I want to educate while I'm training as well. Do you find that teaching or helping other students is a good way to keep your skills sharp with less impact on your body? Cause you're still kind of working your mind for sure. And you know, you, I, I try and not only do that, but I also try and bring what I am teaching and what I'm learning from teaching back into my own training. So when I'm talking about, you know, if I'm doing a throw like Taiwatoshi, which is a body drop throw, and I'm, you know, talking about, you know, you want to lift with your left hand and pull, you know, so that your opponent is off balance off the little toe moving forward. And I want my right hand where my elbow is close to my hip and moving toward my ear. Then when I go to judo the next day and I'm, I'm training, I'm, as I'm doing my form practices, my uchikomi, that's what I'm thinking about. I think is my, you know, am I looking at my watch? Am I pulling my thumb to my ear? Am I, you know, am I positioning myself right? Am I leaving my arm back so that it's, you know, not helping me? Do I want to, so I, I try to use all of that to improve my own technique. And it sounds like sense of humor about training is really important too. For me, it is, man, you know, and, and not just for me, but for the people that I'm training with, you know, I, uh, I taught a kid's class this weekend, you know, and if you don't bring humor to the kids, if they're not having a good time, they don't, they don't enjoy the sport. And if they don't enjoy the sport, they don't, they don't become ambassadors of the sport. And you want, if you want you, your martial art to thrive, if you want your dojo to thrive, you want people to go, this is fun. They take care of you. They're not hurting you. You know, they, they think about safety and they want you to excel, whether it's in competition or in, in the dojo. We've covered a lot of stuff that I think a lot of listeners can benefit from. So where can people learn more about you and your book? You can go to brianherskowitz.com. That's my website. Uh, there's some information there. I don't keep it up as much as I should. No time. And then the other is uh, the book is available at amazon.com and it's called Process to Product, Practical Guide to the Screenwriter. And I'll put links in the show notes. Great. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Sam.